Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Welcome to our first episode of 2021, and it's on a movie that I've been wanting to talk about for a while now, the spectacular train wreck that was Joel Schumacher's 1985 box office hit, St. Elmo's Fire. I can't remember who met who first, or who fell in love with who first. All I can remember is the seven of us always together. Well, it's not just infatuation, Kevin. She's not just a girl. She's the only evidence of God that I can find on this entire planet. Where did you meet Wendy again? Prison. Hi, Felicia. How you doing? Me? Oh, you know, it ain't easy being me. You know all those nights we stayed up talking? How come you never made a pass at me? I'm gonna get you a red, lacy, baby doll Nike. Alec, I'm very happy in your old pajamas. Oh, I'm happy when you're out of my old pajamas. Alec is becoming a Republican and he wants to get married. Oh, my God. Do you ever feel like you're not accomplishing anything at all? I think I'm in touch with that emotion. The heat this summer is at St. Elmo's Fire. You're not going to believe how to hand it's going to be. Now, let me start right off with a confession. I unabashedly love St. Elmo's Fire. And I hate myself for loving it because I know it's a bad movie. It's as formulaic and manufactured as a Chainsmokers song. And for the record, I'm okay with the Chainsmokers. Although I do not love the Chainsmokers the way that I love St. Elmo's Fire. And I do not hate myself for being okay with the Chainsmokers the way I hate myself for loving St. Elmo's Fire. Joel Schumacher began his professional career as a window dresser at the flagship Henri Bendel Boutique Store in Midtown Manhattan in the early 1970s. Schumacher would get himself a job on a movie being produced by writer Dominic Dunn, and from there he would become the costume designer on Woody Allen's 1973 sci-fi comedy classic Sleeper. With Allen's encouragement, Schumacher would write a screenplay, Sparkle, which would quickly sell and become a minor hit for Warner Brothers as part of a wave of successful movies in the mid-1970s featuring predominantly black cast, including Lady Sings the Blues with Diana Ross and Billy D. Williams, Uptown Saturday Night and Let's Do It Again, both featuring Bill Cosby and Sidney Poitier, and Bingo Long's Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings, starring Billy D. Williams, James Earl Jones, and Richard Pryor. Because of the success of Sparkle, the very white and Jewish Schumacher would get assigned to write two more high-profile films aimed towards African-American audiences. Car Wash, which was a massive success, and The Wiz, which at $13.6 million would earn as much or more than any of the movies I've just mentioned a moment ago, but was considered a failure because it cost $24 million to produce, the most expensive movie musical to that point. But Schumacher would be able to position himself to become a director before the failure of The Wiz by writing and directing a 1979 television movie, Amateur Night at the Dixie Bar and Grill. The film did well enough in the ratings 
that when John Landis left the production of the Lily Tomlin sci-fi comedy The Incredible Shrinking Woman, after Universal cut the budget from $30 million to $11 million, Joel Schumacher would get the call to make his feature directing debut. But because Schumacher was not an experienced director, let alone in the complexities of a special effects-heavy movie like this, the budget for the movie would nearly double as Schumacher struggled to implement his vision for the movie with Tomlin and her longtime partner Jane Wagner, who had also written the screenplay and was the executive producer for the film. But there would be one benefit to the complications with the effects. The film would be delayed from a late fall 1980 release to a late January 1981 release, where it would end up writing the coattails of Lily Tomlin's other major movie of the year, 9 to 5, earning more than $22 million in ticket sales, despite some pretty bad reviews. It would be around this time that Schumacher would hire himself an assistant. Carl Kurlander was a recent Duke University graduate who wanted to break into the film industry. During his final year in school, Kurlander had written a story about an infatuation he had with a waitress he worked with over the previous summer while working as a bellhop at the St. Elmo Hotel in Chautauqua, New York. With the guidance of one of his professors, he had hoped the story would be so powerful that it would cause the object of his unrequited infatuation to fall in love with him. It didn't. According to an interview with Kurlander years later, he would state the hardest part of writing the story was coming up with a title for it. The writing professor explained to Kurlander what a St. Elmo's Fire was, and that's how he came up with the title. But while it didn't win him the girl of his dreams, the story would win him an internship at Universal Studios, working for studio president Tom Mount and vice president of production Bruce Berman, where his duties would include getting food for various executives and filmmakers. During one pre-production meeting with Mount and Berman for his upcoming film DC Cab, Schumacher asked Kurlander to get him a bowl of gazpacho from the studio commissary but prepared in a very specific manner, which the intern got for him. A few months later, during a screening of the dailies for DC Cab on the Universal lot, Kurlander was invited to come watch. Schumacher, upon spotting the unfamiliar interloper, demanded to know who he was. Kurlander would remind him of the gazpacho order, to which Schumacher responded with by asking for a sparkling water with no ice and a slice of lemon. By the end of the screening... Schumacher would poach Kurlander from the studio to be his assistant for the remainder of the film shoot. During breaks in production of the Mr. T-led comedy, Schumacher and Kurlander would get into discussions about the lack of movies about people of Kurlander's age. There were plenty of movies about horny high school-aged teenagers like The Last American Virgin and Class, but almost none that would be considered on par with The Graduate. People who are now adults but are unsure of how they fit in with the world. Kurlander would mention his story, St. Elmo's Fire, which he had since churned into a screenplay. Once DC Cab had been released into theaters and became a minor hit, Schumacher asked to read the St. Elmo's Fire screenplay. While he was intrigued by the story of a college guy's crush on a young woman he barely knows, Schumacher felt it wasn't strong enough for an entire movie. For days, the two men would drive around Los Angeles talking about their various life experiences, 
a number of items from Kurlander's life experiences and those of his friends he could make into an interesting ensemble story. Within a month, the story about one guy and his desire for a woman would become one part of a larger story about a group of seven friends whose lives are upended in various ways after graduating from Georgetown University. As he had made his previous two films for Universal, Schumacher naturally took the screenplay to them first. They would reject it. The filmmaker then took it to practically every studio and production company in town. Everyone rejected it. Schumacher would later tell Susanna Gora, author of the definitive book on the Brat Pack, You Couldn't Ignore Me If You Tried, that one studio head had told him the seven characters were, quote, the most loathsome human beings he had ever read on the page, unquote. But Schumacher would find one champion for the screenplay, former Universal President of Production Ned Tainan, who had a production company, Channel Productions, with a first-look deal at the studio, where he was in post-production on John Hughes's Sixteen Candles and was about to start production on Hughes's Breakfast Club. Tannen had worked with Schumacher during the production of Car Wash and had faith the filmmaker could make something special. Even with Tannen on board, with a $10 million production commitment completely financed in-house at Channel, Universal rejected St. Elmo's Fire once again. But one phone call to Columbia Picture Studio head Guy McElwain an old friend of Tannen's, and the picture had a green light to start production in the summer of 1984. Tannen would assign Lauren Schuler, who had just produced the Michael Keaton hit film Mr. Mom and had produced Schumacher's 1979 TV movie Amateur Night at the Dixie Bar and Grill, to take charge of the film once she was done with her duties on the Richard Donner fantasy film Lady Hawk. Casting began in the spring of 1984, and the production would see hundreds of actors and actresses, including Anthony Edwards, who to this point was still best known for a small role in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and Leah Thompson, who had recently starred with Tom Cruise in All the Right Moves. Cruise was considered, but never brought in for testing, as would be the case with Matthew Broderick and Charlie Sheen. As Tannen was producing John Hughes's Breakfast Club at the time, and Schuler was friends with Hughes thanks to her involvement in Mr. Mom, which was written by Hughes, the pair were able to see the rushes from the film as they were coming in from suburban Chicago, and the pair would suggest the three non-teen cast members, Emilio Estevez, Judd Nelson, and Ali Sheedy for various roles. Rob Lowe, the teen heartthrob of Class and the Outsiders, would be the first to be cast. Originally seen for the role of Alec, the liberal yuppie who starts to turn conservative while pursuing a career in politics, Lowe would lobby for the role of Billy, the reckless saxophone player who has trouble committing to his wife, his young child, or practically anything or anyone else. Demi Moore would be cast as Jules, the party girl, whose life as an international banker is a facade for a myriad of issues, quite by accident. Schumacher would literally run into her outside Ned Tainan's office on the Universal lot as she left the office, fuming about a meeting she was supposed to have with Hughes, which the writer-director never showed up for. Schumacher had Kurlander follow Moore to find out if she was an actress because she was dressed exactly as how Schumacher saw that character. Once completed with filming of The Breakfast Club, 
Nelson would get cast as Alec, while Sheedy would get the role of Leslie, a young architect who is unsure of moving further in her relationship with Alec, and Estevez would land the role of Kirby, the love-struck law school student and waiter at St. Elmo's, who was the original story's lead character. Andrew McCarthy, who co-starred in class with Lowe, would find himself cast as Kevin, Kirby's roommate, Alec's best friend, and a cynical writer for the Washington Post who himself has an unrequited crush on Alec's would-be fiance Leslie. But to Schumacher, Schuler, and Tannen, the big get was landing Mayor Winningham as Wendy, the rich socialite who has devoted her post-collegiate life to being a social worker for those less fortunate, who also harbors a not-so-secret crush on Billy. Winningham was, by 1984, an Emmy-winning actress for the Dennis Weaver drama Amber Waves and had just appeared on the smash television miniseries hit The Thornbirds. The remainder of the cast would be rounded out with Andy McDowell, who had just made her film debut as the love interest of Tarzan in Hugh Hudson's Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, earlier that year, as Kirby's crush, Martin Balsam and Joyce Van Patten as Wendy's parents, who just want their daughter to settle down with a nice Jewish boy and have babies, and Jenny Wright from The World According to Garp and Pink Floyd the Wall as Billy's wife. Production would begin in and around Washington, D.C. on October 15, 1984. Ironically, Ned Tannen, the former Universal President of Production, who had his offices on the Universal lot and was producing St. Elmo's Fire for Columbia Pictures, would agree to become the President of Production at Paramount Pictures not seven days before the first day of shooting. And despite taking place at Georgetown University, the private religious university would not permit any filming on campus due to such content as drug use, premarital sex, and adultery happening throughout the film. The filmmakers would shoot the campus sequences at the University of Maryland just down the road. After a week of location shooting, the production would move to Los Angeles for the bulk of shooting, except for one sequence that takes place at a snowy cabin in the woods where Estevez and McDowell would head to Truckee, Nevada for a day of shooting away from the rest of the cast. The production would be complete in time for the cast, including Emilio Estevez and Demi Moore, who fell in love during filming, to be home for Christmas. As Schumacher assembled his first cut of the film, after the first of the year, The Breakfast Club would become something of a cultural touchstone upon its release, and suddenly, his little film had three of the hottest young stars in Hollywood. Estevez, Nelson, and Sheedy were all over the television airwaves giving interviews to whoever would speak to them. Columbia smelled a hit and would move the release date up from a late summer to be determined slot to June 28th, the weekend before the 4th of July, which is often one of the four biggest movie-going weekends of the entire year. The pressure was on, and one of the things the movie still needed was a theme song. Thanks to films like Fame, Flashdance, Footloose, and Beverly Hills Cop, a well-curated soundtrack album could serve as continual advertising for a movie, especially if one of the songs shared a name with that movie. David Foster, the star music producer who had helped create hit albums for the likes of Chicago, Earth, Wind & Fire, 
Aretha Franklin, Michael Jackson, Kenny Loggins, Stevie Nicks, Lionel Richie, and Kenny Rogers was hired to create the score for the movie, as well as create a radio-friendly title song that could help propel soundtrack and ticket sales. So who does Foster go to to help create a radio-friendly title song? This guy. Thirty-two-year-old British singer John Parr had been a working musician in England since he formed his first band, The Silence, at the age of 12 in 1964. But he wouldn't actually release an album, simply titled John Parr, until 1984. That album would spawn an unlikely hit song, Naughty Naughty, which would top the U.S. rock charts in the late summer. Foster would contact Parr, asking to meet about working on a song for the film together. Parr leapt at the chance, but struggled to come up with a catchy pop song that would capture the feel of the film. The proudly Canadian Foster showed Parr a news clip about a paraplegic Canadian athlete, Rick Hansen, who had just started his Man in Motion World Tour to raise public attention to the abilities of people with disabilities and to inspire a more accessible world. Parr had found his inspiration and would write a song that could vaguely fit within the realms of the film, but would very much touch on Rick Hansen and his tour. Parr says it took him two hours to write the lyrics, and only one day for him, Foster, and the musicians involved to record and mix the final track, which sounds a lot like an unused track from the 1984 Chicago album Seventeen, whose songs include Along Comes a Woman, Hard Habit to Break, You're the Inspiration, and We Can Stop the Hurting. As the film was preparing for its late June release, the studio ramped up the publicity machine. Individual and group portraits were scheduled throughout the spring, and the young stars willingly obliged. Well, mostly. One reporter who was given nearly unfettered access to the stars of the movie was New York Magazine writer David Bloom, whose cover feature, called Hollywood's Brat Pack, would greatly detail the happenings of a group of seemingly spoiled young actors. The article would take aim not only at the stars of the movie, 
such as calling Judd Nelson, quote, the overrated one, unquote, or Rob Lowe, quote, the most beautiful face, unquote, but also dunk on actors who didn't really have anything to do with the stars of St. Elmo's Fire, like Matt Dillon, who Bloom dubbed, quote, the one least likely to replace Marlon Brando, unquote, and Nick Cage, who Bloom dubbed, quote, the ethnic chair, unquote. It really was a hit piece full of animosity and vitriol, and fairly or unfairly labeled a number of talented young actors as problem people, including those like Anthony Michael Hall, who weren't even mentioned in the article, but were found guilty by association for having acted in a movie with two of the stars of St. Elmo's Fire. But at least the ladies were left out. Despite the article and a number of unkind reviews, the $10 million movie would find success at the box office. The movie would open in fourth place its first weekend in theaters, with $6.1 million in ticket sales, behind Clint Eastwood's Pale Rider, which also opened that weekend, Cocoon, which had opened the week before, and Rambo First Blood Part Two, which was in its sixth week of release. The film would drop to sixth place in its second week, which was consumed with the opening of Back to the Future, and would continue to be a top ten movie throughout the end of July. The film would start to seg from first-run theaters to dollar houses after Labor Day, ironically, when its theme song would hit number one on the Billboard charts, and would continue to play in theaters throughout the end of the year, where it would finish its run with a healthy $37.8 million in ticket sales, which, adjusted to inflation for December 2020, would be more than $91.25 million. The film would be the 25th highest-grossing film for 1985, just behind Lawrence Kasdan's Western Silverado, but ahead of such films as Desperately Seeking Susan, Fright Night, The Original Nightmare on Elm Street, and Pritzi's Honor. I was 17 when St. Elmo's Fire came out, I had graduated high school not two weeks earlier, and I literally headed out to Los Angeles to make it in the film industry the morning after I graduated. I'd go to the movies every chance I got, and thanks to dollar houses like the AMC Alondra 6 in Cerritos, I saw a lot of movies. But dollar houses like the Alondra played movies weeks or months after they opened first run, so I'd catch stuff like Larry Conan's The Stuff long after most of my friends back in Santa Cruz had watched them. I was poor, so I had to be certain the films that I saw first run were worth it. St. Elmo's Fire was one of those films I felt was worth paying full price for. And the weird part is, today, I couldn't even tell you why I needed to see it opening weekend. Maybe I was already missing my friends up north, even though I had only been gone a couple of weeks. I hadn't made any new friends to hang out with in Los Angeles yet, so I often went to the movies by myself. Maybe it was that loneliness that made me want to see a movie about a group of friends in their lives after college. College was a dream for me at the time. I wouldn't even end up going to college until I was in my mid-40s. But I saw St. Elmo's Fire opening weekend. Oh yes, I did. And I was enthralled. Twice. First in a purely physical manner by Demi Moore. I had seen her in movies like Charles Band's Parasite and the John Cryer comedy No Small Affair, 
But she didn't make her mark on me until St. Elmo's Fire. And my God, was she beautiful in St. Elmo's Fire. Second, I saw myself in the character of Kevin Dolans. He was a writer. I was a writer. He smoked. I smoked. He turned his bongos in for a battered Underwood typewriter. I put down my bass guitar for a battered Sears Electric 12 typewriter. Many of his friends thought he was strange and gay. Many of my friends thought I was strange and gay. He was in love with his best friend's girlfriend. I was in love with a girl who my best friend started dating after I got sick the night I was supposed to take her out on what would hopefully be our first date. He was shy and sarcastic. I was shy and sarcastic. He had dark blonde hair that was a little long in the back and was parted on the left. I had dark blonde hair that was a little long in the back and parted on my left. He didn't have much experience in love. I didn't have much experience in love. The only differences was that he was much better looking than me, had blue eyes, had a much nicer wardrobe, and he had a real job as a writer. I would fail to break into the film industry. The closest getting to that dream was being on the air with Swedish Eagle at the world-famous K-Rock to talk about movies from time to time, and I would head back home to Santa Cruz a year later, where I would get a job at a movie theater that was supposed to last for one summer and ended up becoming a 34-year career until the coronavirus closed my theater. There were only two movies I saw more than once first run during that year in Los Angeles, Back to the Future and St. Elmo's Fire. But watching it now in my mid-50s, long married and somewhat established as a writer, I see the many faults within the film. The characters are shallow caricatures, their motivations enraging, the music score derivative, the camera work flat and uninspiring, and unworthy of the cinematographer of Apocalypse Now and the Black Stallion. And the editing is atrocious. The studio head who pegged these characters as loathsome was pretty spot on. Alec, Billy, Jules, Kevin, Kirby, and Leslie are prototypes for Chandler, Joey, Monica, Phoebe, Rachel, and Ross. Only Wendy comes across as anything less than repugnant. Watching it again while I wrote this episode, I can't tell you what Billy studied for or really what most of them study for at Georgetown. Kirby wanted to be a lawyer, but law school is an extra three years of schooling that he doesn't seem to have. Leslie wants to be an architect, but I'm not sure Georgetown has ever offered a degree in architecture. Alec is pursuing a career in politics, and Jules works in banking, so those are at least careers where going to a school like Georgetown would be beneficial. But does Wendy really need a Georgetown degree? to have a career as a social worker? For the actors, St. Elmo's Fire would be a step up to the next level in their careers. Demi Moore, of course, became the biggest female movie star working in the early 90s, thanks to her roles in Ghost, A Few Good Men, and In Decent Proposal. Emilio Estevez would make his first film as a screenwriter, That Was Then, This Is Now, shortly after completing this film, and make Wisdom, his first film as writer and director, the following year at the age of 23. We'll be doing a show about wisdom next week. 
Rob Lowe's film career would fall apart after a sex tape scandal in 1988 and an infamous appearance at the Academy Awards in 1989, but he would have a career resurgence on television starting with The West Wing in 1999. Mare Winningham continued to work in movies and television. She would be nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in 1995 for the film Georgia, and she would win a second Emmy two years later for her role as Lurleen Wallace opposite Gary Sinise in a TNT miniseries. Andrew McCarthy would have a good run as an actor for another decade before turning towards being a travel writer for National Geographic Traveler magazine. Ali Sheedy would win a number of accolades for her role in high art in 1998. And Judd Nelson has worked steadily over the past 35 years and has the unique distinction of playing different roles in two different productions of the story of the Billionaire Boys Club, first as the murderous Joe Hunt in a 1987 NBC miniseries, and then as Joe's father Ryan in a 2018 movie. The success of St. Elmo's Fire and his working relationship with producer Lauren Schuler would get Joel Schumacher his next directing job. Schuler had started dating director Richard Donner after they made Lady Hawk together. After Donner completed Lady Hawk, he was planning on making a young adult vampire movie called The Lost Boys, but decided to make Lethal Weapon instead, but stayed on The Lost Boys as an executive producer. When he and Schuler were talking about potential director replacements, she would bring up Schumacher's name. When The Lost Boys became a hit in the summer of 1987, Schumacher would become an in-demand filmmaker and begin an enviable decade-long streak of popular films. Cousins, Flatliners, Dying Young, Falling Down, The Client, Batman Forever, A Time to Kill, and Batman to Robin. But after 8mm in 1999, he'd direct more flops than hits. Of the last 11 films he made between 1999 and 2011, only two, Phone Booth and The Phantom of the Opera, would earn more than their production budgets. His last major credit would be directing the fifth and sixth episodes of the first season of House of Cards. He would pass away from cancer at the age of 80 this past June. I very briefly got to know Joel Schumacher in 1984, when he would regularly strike up conversations with me at my theater in Santa Monica, which isn't actually all that strange. A lot of filmmakers like to talk to movie theater managers about movies. I wasn't often fond of his movies, but he was always warm, kind, and quite articulate whenever we spoke. As of January 2021, St. Elmo's Fire is free to stream with commercials on Pluto TV, or free without commercials, for those with an Amazon Prime account. You can also rent it for $3.99 or purchase it for $12.99 on most other streaming services. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, narrated, produced, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. <laughs>